0: All right. Thank you very much. Appreciate that. If you would turn again to Romans chapter 8. Romans chapter 8. We've been going through a series on the love of God and especially wanting to encourage us to trust the love of God and to trust the love of God in every situation, in every relationship... That ultimately, when the Bible calls us to trust in God, it's calling us to trust in God's love for us. Uh, to trust him to do us good. To trust him to be loving us and to always love us. And so, that's why 1 John four sixteen says, We have come to know and have believed the love which God has for us. Now, today, uh, what I want to focus on has to do with... Um, the universal aspect of trusting God's love, if you want to think about it in that way. I don't know about you, but as I think about the things that are going on in our country, it almost feels like every day there's something new that seems to be being changed or challenged or looked at differently or handled differently. Um, It wasn't just a few years ago that we were okay with just men and women. Um, It wasn't very long ago that we were okay with saying that marriage is between a man and a woman. And now all those things have changed. And so it seems like more and more, just about everything in our country seems to be being overturned and changed and challenged. And um, it's not surprising, I think... um, A while back, I mentioned a video that I saw that's entitled Eight Predictions for the World in 2030, and it talks about eight different things that the leaders in the World Economic Forum um, believe will happen or would like to see happen, and two of those things is the first one is you will own nothing and you will be happy, which is an amazing statement that um, their goal at least these leaders were talking about their goal is to get to us to a place in the world where the rank and file owns nothing now somebody has to own it but the idea is that the rank and file most people will own nothing and be happy and it's really interesting because what we're going to talk about today in Romans 8 is just the opposite that the promises that we have in Christ is not that we will own nothing and be happy that we will own everything and be happy. That's really the gospel. That's the good news. And we'll see that as we look at Romans 8 again. But another part of what is talked about in this video is, and this is the last one, is that Western values will have been tested to the breaking point. And I think that's a gentle way of saying Western values will have been completely overturned. What do they mean by Western values? They mean the Judeo-Christian heritage, what took place in Europe and what has taken place in um, America to shape these countries, although Europe is ahead of us and moving away from that. But the idea is that the things that have undergirded our society that are based on the Bible, they're Biblical principles, biblical morality, those things will be overturned and changed. And somehow they want to maintain a kind of democracy, even though those things are no longer the case. And we know that our founding father said, if you basically get rid of Christianity, you get rid of everything that we've built our nation on in terms of principles and morals. And so um, what we find in Romans chapter eight is um, really the opposite of what a lot of people are, are clearly pursuing. I've mentioned before that there's a phrase that has been going around in light of these kinds of things that has been attributed to a number of different people. One was Winston Churchill, the saying, never let a good crisis go to waste. The idea of we're going to take advantage of the COVID crisis Um, There's more talk about taking advantage of the climate crisis. There's talk about taking advantage of the cyber security crisis. And so there are more uh, taking advantage of crises to come, you know, in order to achieve the kinds of things they're talking about. Well, Romans 8 lets us know that uh, that is really true, that we should not let a good crisis go to waste because God doesn't. God does not let a good crisis go to waste uh, because he brings good out of the crisis. And that's exactly what we will see in this um, passage this morning as we look at it more closely. What I've been trying to do uh, this year is just answer the question, how do we prepare for whatever is to come? Whatever God allows to happen in our country, and it will be under his sovereign allowance or permission or, or ordination, if it happens, it'll be because God in his plan has ordained that it happened happens and so how are we to prepare for that and I've come to bring us to a point of wanting to think in terms of we need to know that God loves us, that whatever comes, we need to know the love of the Father, as I, I've said several times, John Owen said, the love of the Father is the only rest of the soul so if we're going to find rest and peace and joy even when everything seems to be changing and falling apart it will be because we know that god loves us and so i mentioned last week that the book of romans is considered by many as the the highest point in the bible and the point from which that you can see the rest of the landscape of the Bible in such a way that you can understand really what the Bible is all about. Uh, Martin Luther would say that the book of Romans is really the chief part of the New Testament. He would argue that every believer ought to read it all the time and even memorize it word for word. And he says it can't be thought about too much or pondered too much, and as we do that, it will become more and more precious to us. And I can clearly see what he's talking about in light of what we're going to look at this morning in Romans chapter 8. Another theologian, Derek Thomas, said, Nothing can blow you over when you are inside the walls of Romans 8.28. Outside of Romans 8.28, all is confusion and anxiety and fear and uncertainty. And that is what we're going to look at this morning. So like I mentioned last week, Romans 8 can kind of be summarized in terms of three things uh, no condemnation no complacency and no fear that it starts out by saying if we're trusting in jesus even though we still sin and we still fail there's no condemnation even in the face of our sin because jesus has done all that needs to be done for us to be forgiven but secondly even though we're forgiven that doesn't mean we don't care about sin There's still no complacency because God has given us the Holy Spirit and the Holy Spirit in us says you need to deal with that sin because you can't love and sin at the same time and God calls us to love and so there will always be within us a A heart to deal with sin to one degree or another because the Holy Spirit in us will be saying you need to deal with that. You need to put that to death. You need to fight that because you can't love God and love others and be content with sin. So there's no condemnation, but there's no complacency. But a, a huge part of the chapter, which you're looking at now, is about there's no fear. There's no fear for us as Christians, no matter what happens we need not fear. So that if, if our hearts are prone to fear, and they are, if our hearts are prone to worry and be anxious, and they are, we need to be reminded that that is a failure to believe what God is telling us in his word. And we need to fight that. We need we need not to think that um, it's just normal. It's normal for sinners, but it's not Meant to be normal for us as Christians is something that we should want to see ourselves grow in and fight on a daily basis. Because we want to reflect that we really believe that our father loves us. We want to communicate to people that I have a father and he's sovereign and he's good and he loves me. And when I'm overcome with fear and anxiety, that raises questions about whether or not I have a father who's sovereign and good, and whether or not I can trust him to love me in every situation. And so let's look again at verses 15 through the end of the chapter, and we'll highlight certain things along these lines this morning. So in verse 15, Paul says, For you have not received a spirit of slavery leading to fear again. That's where the no fear comes in. But you have received a spirit of adoption as sons, by which we cry out, Abba, Father. Father. The Spirit Himself testifies with our spirit that we are children of God. And if children, heirs also, heirs of God and fellow heirs with Christ. If indeed we suffer with Him, so that we may also be glorified with Him. For I consider that the sufferings of this present time are not worthy to be compared with the glory that is to be revealed to us. For the anxious longing of the the creation waits Eagerly for the revealing of the sons of God. For the creation was subjected to futility, not willingly, but because of him who subjected it. And hope that the creation itself also will be set free from its slavery to corruption, into the freedom of the glory of the children of God. For we know that the whole creation groans and suffers the pains of childbirth together until now. And not only this, but but also we ourselves... "...having the firstfruits of the Spirit, even we ourselves groan within ourselves, waiting eagerly for our adoption as sons, the redemption of our body. For in hope we have been saved, but hope that is seen is not hope. For who hopes for what he already sees? But if we hope for what we do not see, with perseverance we wait eagerly for it. In the same way, the Spirit also helps our weakness, for we do not know how to pray as we should." For the Spirit Himself intercedes for us with groanings too deep for words. And he who searches the hearts knows what the mind of the Spirit is, because He intercedes for the saints according to the will of God. And we know that God causes all things to work together for good to those who love God, to those who are called according to His purpose. For those whom He foreknew, He also predestined to become conformed to the image of His Son, so that He would be the firstborn. Among many brethren. And um, these whom he predestined he also called, and these whom he called he also justified, and these whom he justified he also glorified. What then shall we say to these things? If God is for us, who is against us? He who did not spare his own son, but delivered him over for us all, how will he not also with him freely give us all things? Who will bring a charge against God's elect? But in all these things, we overwhelmingly conquer through him who loved us. For I'm convinced that neither death nor life nor angels nor principalities nor things present nor things to come nor powers nor height nor depth nor any other created thing will be able to separate us from the love of God, which is in Christ Jesus, our Lord. So here we're talking about the love of the Father For his children. And the children of God are all those who have repented of their sins and entrusted themselves to Jesus as Lord and Savior. So, the love of God for his children, and we said uh, three things last week about that that it's a disguised love, it's an all things love, and it's an in Christ love. Last week we talked about the fact that it's a disguised love, not that it's disguised in the Bible. We read it very, very clearly there. Uh, It's not disguised. It's it's proclaimed boldly and clearly that God loves his children, and he loves them perfectly and fully and forever. But in our experience, it can be disguised. Uh, God's love for us doesn't always look and feel like love. That's why Job said, God, you're not loving me, because it didn't look like love, it didn't feel like love, and he was being pushed to trust God's word even when it didn't look and feel like love. But we talked about the fact that it says uh, a couple times here in this passage that one day Jesus will be revealed and one day the sons of God will be revealed. The word revealed there means to unveil. You pull the sheet away and the world will see who Jesus really is, and the world will see who Christians really are, that they are the sons of God. That's why uh, C.S. Lewis one time said, there are no ordinary people. He said, you've never talked to a mere mortal, that every person is immortal in some sense. They're either immortal horrors in that one day it will, will be revealed just how much they are opposed to God, they don't want God, they reject God, and they will receive the just consequences of that. And then there will be those who will be revealed as everlasting splendors. Those that may that very likely were despised and thought of lightly or, or lowly in this world will be seen. For what they really are which, are, which is the children of God. And they will be everlasting splendors. And so we want to look at that uh, aspect of just how uh, glorious the love of God for us is by looking at the fact that the love of the Father, and this is the second point, is an all things love that one day will be fulfilled and all things love. Now, there are uh, three reasons why I say that. If you will look at verse 28, there are three references to all things in Romans 8. In verse 28, it says that we know that God causes all things to work together for good to those who love God. And the first point is that the love of the Father for his children transforms all circumstances. Then in verse 32, it says, He who did not spare his own son but delivered him over for us all, how will he not also with him freely give us all things? Which means the love of the Father for his children includes all blessings. And then finally in verse 37 it says, But in all these things, or in all things, we overwhelmingly conquer through him who loved us. Which means the love of the Father for his children conquers all sufferings. So you've got all circumstances, all blessings, all sufferings included. And in that sense, we're talking about a universal kind of love for um, the children of God. And so I just want to spend a little time highlighting some things about this and hopefully encourage your hearts uh, this morning. Uh, To begin with, the love of the Father transforms all circumstances. Again, in verse 28, he says... God causes all things to work together for good. Now, what does that mean? It means God will not allow anything, even our sin or the sin of others, to keep us from what is good and to add to our joy in God. God will not allow anything, even our own sin and the sin of others. Nothing will keep us from the good that God has promised us and will uh will keep us from having our joy added to in the life to come. Now, there are different ways the Bible talks about this in other places. For instance, in Deuteronomy 23, 5, it says, The Lord your God was not willing to listen to Balaam, talking about Israel, but the Lord your God turned the curse into a blessing for you. Why? Because the Lord your God loves you. So it says there that God turned the curse into a blessing because he loved them. And that's exactly what Paul is saying in Romans 8, 28. Because you are loved by God the Father as his child, trusting in Jesus, whatever others might intend to be evil, might intend to be a curse, God will turn it into a blessing. We see that as we've already seen in Genesis 50, verse 20, where Joseph tells his brothers, you meant evil against me, but God meant it for good. So even when people sin against us and mean to hurt us and mean to um, undermine our joy and our good, somehow God means it for good. God will turn the curse into a blessing. He promises to do that. It actually uh, says in Psalm 23, which is a famous psalm, um, he's, it says, Even though I walk through the valley of the shadow of death, I fear no evil. Again, the idea of I don't fear anything. I need not fear. For you are with me. Your rod and your staff, they comfort me. You prepare a table before me in the presence of my enemies. What does that mean? I'm eating with my enemies. I'm in relationship to my enemies, and they're not out for my good. But you cook up something good for me in the presence of my enemies. You're feeding me with what is good when they're trying to kill me, when they're trying to do me harm. You're feeding me with good. It goes on to say, You have anointed my head with oil, my cup overflows. Surely goodness and loving kindness will follow me all the days of my life, and I will dwell in the house of the Lord forever. That word surely could be translated only. Only goodness and loving kindness will follow me. Now, is that to say that we don't have any bad experiences or don't experience sin and evil? No. It just means the ultimate result will not be anything that will take away from our joy in God and our ultimate happiness. It will ultimately be only goodness and loving kindness. And that word follow could also be translated pursue. Um, It can be translated persecute, which means I pursue you until I overtake you. God is that intent on making sure that the only thing we end up with in the long run, in the end, will be goodness and loving kindness. He's that committed to his children. And there are other verses that talk along those same lines, but just from a different perspective. Uh, In Psalm 119, it says, uh, For all things are your servants, talking about God. So if everything that happens is ultimately serving the purpose of God and it's God's purpose to do his children good, then all things are our servants as well. All things in our lives and all things in the world. In Ephesians 1, 11, it says, uh, having been predestined according to his purpose, who works all things after the counsel of his will. He's working all things, what's going on in our country, what's going on in our lives. It's all being worked out in accordance with his will. And what is God's will? It's to work all things together for our good. He says it very clearly. That is his will. That is his purpose. He will not fail. We can trust him. You know, um, Jonathan Edwards went so far as to argue, and he's not the only one, I think, Augustine or Augustine. Uh, did the same thing in arguing that even our our sin and would include the sin of others too is something that God uses for our good which if there's anything that we would think probably doesn't work for our good it would be our own sin and what he says is though it is to the eternal damage of the saints ordinarily when they yield to and are overcome by temptations yet satan and other enemies of the saints by whom these temptations come, are always wholly disappointed in their temptations, and baffled in their design to hurt the saints, inasmuch as the temptation and the sin that comes by it is for the saints' good, and they receive a greater benefit in the issue than if the temptation had not been, and yet less than if the temptation had been overcome. All right, so he's drawing some fine distinctions there if you listen closely to what he says. It's the design of Satan and evil people to hurt you and to hurt us. But God will not allow it. God will not allow it. He will even turn the temptations we face and even our failures to obey into our good. Now, Edwards would say, not as much good as if we had obeyed. And Paul could say in other places, if you take that and say, uh, let's do evil that good might come. Paul could say, uh, may you be condemned by thinking that. That's a totally wrong uh, way of thinking that just because God is so gracious and so powerful and so loving toward his children that he will turn even our sin into something good doesn't mean we should not be concerned about sin at all. And John could say we need to watch over our lives that we not lose what we could lose. And yet, even in our failures and sin, God will not allow us to not in some sense benefit out of his gracious kindness to us. And so uh, that's what we see going on here when it talks about God works all things together for good. And who does he do that for? In verse 29, it talks about those he foreknew. Now, some people take that as those he those he knew before they were born, but that would include everybody. Some take that as though he knew, those he knew would trust in Christ, but that's not really what he's talking about here. The word for for knew, based on the idea of the word know as it's used in Scripture, is really being used here in terms of to love beforehand or to set one's love upon someone. Beforehand, I loved you before I even met you, so to speak, or before I even created you. It's, it's a for love, to love beforehand. So when it says that God causes all things to work together for good to those who love God, that doesn't mean we've earned that by loving God. Because the only reason I would ever love God is because he's loved me first. I've been for loved. I've been loved before. I started loving him, and that results in my being loved. Um, and then there's a chain here. I can spend a lot of time on all these. I'm going to have to move us through here. But there's a chain here uh, that starts with the idea of being loved beforehand, before the world that goes on to talk about being predestined and called and justified and glorified. And that's an unbroken and unbreakable chain, which means if you've experienced one, you will experience the others. And so if you've been foreloved, you will, will have been predestined and called and justified and glorified. And obviously glorified means, in a sense, in God's mind, it's already happened even though it hasn't happened for us yet. It's in the past tense, and so to foreknow love, or excuse me, to foreknow means to love beforehand. To predestine means to be marked out beforehand for a purpose. To call means to work in that person's heart to cause them to trust when they would not trust otherwise. To justify means to declare righteous though ungodly, and that's something we need to be reminded of every day. And then finally, to glorify means to be made like Christ, and that's what he says. It's that God is at work to do us good and ultimately that doing us good means to make us like Jesus. That it's not just the idea of giving us, you know, cookies and ice cream. It's the idea of making us like Christ. Um, which, like it says in Romans 12, do not be conformed to this world but be transformed by the re- renewing of your mind. What is God doing in our lives right now? He's seeking to transform our minds. He's tre- seeking to renew our minds so that we begin to live more and more according to the will of God. Someone has said, It is God's plan that his people become like his son, not that they should just muddle along in a modest respectability. You See, we're prone to just, just thinking, Well, I think I'm good enough. I don't think I really need to grow much. I think I'm better than a lot of people I know. And God says, I'm not going to leave you in uh, modest respectability. I'm going to make you like Jesus. And I'm going to do whatever it takes to make you like Jesus. Because if you're going to have the joy of Jesus, you've got to be like Jesus. And Jesus said, I want them to have my joy. And the Father says, great, I'm going to make them like you. That's what's going on in our lives. Uh, someone else said, uh, Jesus Christ did not suffer so that you would not suffer. He suffered so that when you suffer, you'll become like him. He did not suffer so you would not suffer and I would not suffer, except in the sense of eternal punishment and wrath. But he did not suffer so that we would not have hard times and difficulties and things like that. But he suffered so that we might grow through them and become more like Christ and indeed have the joy of Jesus. Indeed, someone else has said it's God's Uh, work in love to achieve the highest possible goal. That when God says, I'm going to make you like my son, he could not do anything better for you. He could not do anything better for me. That's the highest possible blessing is to be made like Jesus and then to enjoy that which Jesus enjoys. And so... That's why I say the first point out of Romans 8, 28 is that the love of the father for his children transforms all of our circumstances. The second thing in verse 32 is that the love of the father includes all blessings. It says, if he didn't spare his own son, but delivered him over for us all, how will he not also with him freely give us all things? Back up in verse 17, it says that we are heirs of God and fellow heirs or co-heirs with Christ. An heir is a child who receives what belongs to the Father. And if our Father is God, and God created everything and he owns everything, what do you get if you inherit what belongs to the Father? Or you can look at it from the perspective, if the Father has given everything to the Son and we are united with the Son, what do we get? We get everything that's been given to the Son. And what has the Father given the Son? All things. The Bible says the Father has given all things into the hands of the Son. Now, the Bible talks about that in different ways. In one sense, in Romans 4, it talks about the fact that Abraham would be uh, heir of the world Uh, In other places, it talks about us inheriting the kingdom. So in different ways, the Bible talks about us inheriting everything that God owns. But most importantly, the Bible also talks in terms of inheriting God. Not in the sense that we somehow control God or we become God or anything like that, but it talks in this way in Joshua 13, 33, talks about the levi's the tribe of levi it says god did not give them an inheritance but the lord the god of israel is their inheritance in psalm 16 it says the lord is the portion of my inheritance and my cup or in psalm 119 the lord is my portion meaning the inheritance really is god and it's pictured in the book of Revelation as God dwelling with us and being among us and having face-to-face fellowship with God. But that is truly our inheritance. You can think about it this way. Um, God elects a people to save out of sin. He gives them to his son and then he gives everything he has to them. There could not be a greater gift. God could not give you anything greater. That's why Paul could say that the sufferings that we experience, this is in verse 18, uh, cannot be compared with the glory that is to be revealed to us. Now, it's true that there are some horrific things that people go through in this life. Truly horrific. And Paul isn't downplaying the horrific the horrific nature of what a lot of people experience, maybe even you have experienced in your life. He's not downplaying that. He's simply saying that the glory that is promised us as the children of God far exceeds the horrific nature of anything anyone has experienced in this life. So that we can say the sufferings of this life are often horrible and weighty in view of themselves, in and of themselves, But in comparison to the glory God has promised to his children, they are not weighty at all. In comparison, they're not weighty at all. They're like feathers. They basically have no weight in comparison. Now, that's not to minimize anyone's suffering. That's to magnify the glory. That's to say that we will never in eternity look back on what we've experienced and say, I'm not sure this was worth it we will say, there's nothing I experienced that even compares to what I'm enjoying now in this time. That's why it says in 1 Corinthians uh, 2, things which eye has not seen and ear has not heard and which have not entered the heart of man, all that God has prepared for those who love him. Or it says in 2 Corinthians 4, for momentary light affliction, heavy in and of itself, but like a feather in comparison. For momentary light affliction is producing for us an eternal weight of glory far beyond all comparison. While we look not at the things which are seen, but at the things which are not seen. For the things which are seen are temporal, but the things which are not seen are eternal. Paul goes on and he talks about the fact that in verse 31, God is for us. And so we're talking about God's love for us includes all blessings. It's a blessing that is so much greater than anything we might suffer in this life. And it's a blessing that is guaranteed because God is for us. And actually in Isaiah, what we find uh, in the verses 31 through 34 are actually reflected in Isaiah 54, where it says, God says, no weapon that is formed against you will prosper. No weapon that is formed against you will prosper. And every tongue that accuses you in judgment will, uh, you will condemn. That's exactly what he says. He says, you will not be condemned, but those who condemn you will be condemned. Nothing that is intended to harm you will prosper. It won't harm you. That doesn't mean we won't suffer pain. It just means we won't suffer ultimate harm that God is going to transform it and he's going to bring about incredible glory and blessing for us. Someone else has said in the last analysis, there is no against within the orbit of the interests of the people of God. If God is for us and God is overall and cannot be defeated, cannot be thwarted, then there's really nothing that's truly against us. Sometimes you'll hear people say, uh, even in the scriptures, oh, it's against me. All these things are against me. Whether it's um, um, Israel, Jacob, or other people in the scriptures, all these things are against me. I would say, no, all these things are for you. All these things are for you. They may appear to be against you. They may look like they're against you. They may feel like they're against you, but they're really for you. And the good thing is, like R.C. Sproul would say, if there was one molecule, one rogue molecule in the universe, that I'd be afraid that God couldn't keep his promises to me. The fact is, he controls every single molecule in the universe. And the sovereignty of God primarily is not meant to keep us from praying or sharing the gospel. It's meant to keep us from being afraid that God will not keep his promises and do us good. It's meant to deliver us from fear in all these things, even when uh, Satan is trying to steal, kill and destroy, even when uh, the whole world lies in the power of the evil one, as the Bible says, uh, we need not be afraid. In verse 32, it talks about the all things. And I'll just highlight a few things as we conclude this section. This means God will give us every good thing that is possible to be given to a created being by an infinite God. Okay, God cannot make you God and will not make us God. God is infinite, we're not. But every possible blessing that can be given to a created being by an infinite God is yours. That's an amazing thing. That's a jaw-dropping thing. You think some of the things happening in our country is jaw-dropping? That's truly jaw-dropping that God would be so gracious, so kind, so loving, that he would give sinners who have spit in his face and said, I don't want to have anything to do with you. He would rescue them, change them, and bless them in the greatest ways possible. There's all kinds of ways this is talked about in the scripture. 1 Corinthians 3 says, So then let no one boast in men, for all things belong to you. Whether Paul or Apollos or Cephas or the world or life or death or things present or things to come, all things belong to you and you belong to Christ and Christ belongs to God. Actually, it says in John 13, Jesus, knowing that the father had given all things into his hands, washed the disciples' feet. You really need to know that God has given you everything so that you can love the people around you who may not give you anything. And that's the way it was with the disciples. They didn't give Jesus anything, but he knew the Father had given him everything, and so he loved them. It says in 2 Corinthians 6, as sorrowful, yet always rejoicing, as poor, yet making many rich, as having nothing, yet possessing all things. Right now, Christians walk around, and people look at them and say, those poor Christians, they don't have anything. God says, no, you have everything. It looks like you have nothing, but you have everything. And so it's a tremendous, tremendous thing that God has done for us. Again, C.S. Lewis could say, aim at heaven and you will get earth thrown in. Aim at earth and you will get neither. And he goes on to talk about the fact that, you know, people think of heaven as being sitting around on a cloud playing a harp, how boring that must be. And he says the reality is if you read what scripture says, so much of what scripture says about what God has promised us is in um, figurative terms because he can't explain it to us because we could not fathom what eye has not seen nor ear heard nor entered into the heart of man, all that God has promised us. Well, Let me move on to the last point. The love of the Father transforms all circumstances it includes all blessings and finally the love of the father for his children conquers all sufferings now what does it mean to conquer it means you pass the test and you gain instead of losing you pass the test and you gain instead of losing that's what says in verse 37 but in all these things we overwhelmingly conquer through him who loved us Now back up in verse 17, Paul says uh, we will be glorified if we suffer with him. So that suffering and glory go together. And if you read the passage carefully, you realize that uh, suffering is a big part of the Christian life. It's an expected part of the Christian life. And why is that? Well, Philippians 1 says, For to to you it has been granted for Christ's sake not only to believe in him, but also to suffer for his sake. So why is that? It's because that was the path that Christ walked. In Luke 24, it says, was it not necessary for the Christ to suffer these things and to enter into his glory? Jesus said, if anyone would come after me, let him deny himself, take up his cross and follow me. If you want to join me in glory, then understand that it's going to be through the path of the cross, which is a path of suffering and doing the will of God. That's what the cross is. It means I give my life to doing the will of God, pleasing God, trusting him for the mercy that is in Jesus, but knowing that that is going to cost me, that it's going to be painful, that there's suffering that's going to be involved. Even though I'm forgiven and I'm on my way to glory, there is still suffering involved in the whole process. Now, the question is, what kinds of suffering? Well, in verse 18, it says, the sufferings of this present time, which means all suffering. Whatever suffering we go through is included in this idea of God conquering all sufferings. But I think we can also highlight some other aspects of that that Paul talks about here in verse 23. I think we could uh, uh, highlight the fact that he talks about uh, our um groaning and 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 longing to uh have our bodies our glorified bodies why is that because back up in chapter 7 verse 24 he said oh wretched man that i am who will deliver me from this body of death and so one of the things that we suffer with is our ongoing struggle with sin that it grieves us that we hunger for righteousness and so that's part of our suffering is the ongoing struggle and battle with sin. In verse 26, he talks about the fact that we do not know how to pray. It doesn't mean we don't know how to know how to pray at all. It means that we don't know all that we need to pray. And just our ignorance of what's going on and how to respond and how to pray is a kind of suffering that we're in the dark. The Bible talks about us being in the dark and trusting God in the dark. We're in the dark. And that's a kind of suffering. We don't have all the information we'd like to have. And yet, uh, that, even that suffering is uh, suffering that God overcomes in our lives. We have the suffering of waiting and longing, verses 23 and 25. We, we wait for God to fulfill all his promises to us. They're not fulfilled yet. But we long for it. And that longing itself is a kind of suffering. We're, we're wanting to um, be delivered. We're wanting to see God. We're wanting to be in fellowship with him. We're wanting uh, this dim view of God to be taken away. We're wanting to praise him and love him freely. We want it, we're wanting to enjoy all that he's promised us. And we have to wait. But then in verse 35 highlights some of the more difficult things, the difficult kinds of sufferings, where he talks about tribulation. And the word tribulation there has to do with pressure and it's the idea of outward pressure, pressure, as if you were crushing grapes. He says we experience the suffering of outward pressure and affliction on us. But verse 35 also talks about distress and that's the idea of inner pressure. It's inner affliction. It's the idea of a narrow place being between a rock and a hard place. And that rock and the hard place is in our own hearts and minds. That I don't know what to do. I'm perplexed about what's going on. I don't know what to do. I'm between a rock and a hard place in my own heart and mind. And it causes affliction and suffering. He goes on to talk about persecution. Obviously, it applies to Uh, Christians being persecuted uh, harassed because they're Christians but it can be a way of talking about uh, anyone seeking to hurt us anyone sinning against us um, and opposing our good being persecuted the suffering of famine and the suffering of nakedness it's actually the suffering of uh, not having our basic necessities but didn't God promise to meet our basic necessities. Yes, unless there'd be greater good to come out of it by not granting, granting it. This is a hard thing. Um, can a Christian starve to death in Sudan? Yes, he can. But, we'll say more about that in a minute. He goes on to talk about peril, the suffering of peril. What is that? It means being in danger. It means being in a risky situation. It means knowing that my life could end at any time or someone might hurt me in this kind of situation. The danger of peril and then the suffering of the sword, which the sword is a picture of execution, capital punishment, death, martyrdom. And actually in Second Corinthians 11, Paul talks about all these things except for the sword, which one day he would be put to death with the sword. He says are they servants of Christ I speak as if insane I more so in far more labors and far more imprisonments beaten times without number often in danger of death five times I received from the Jews 39 lashes three times I was bit, beaten with rods once I was stoned three times I was shipwrecked a night and a day I have spent in the deep I have been on frequent journeys in dangers from rivers dangers from robbers, dangers from my countrymen, dangers from the Gentiles, dangers in the city, dangers in the wilderness, dangers on the sea, dangers among false brethren. I've been in labor and hardship through many sleepless nights, in hunger and thirst, often without food, in cold and exposure, meaning not having enough clothing. Apart from such external things, there is the daily pressure inwardly on me of concern for all The churches. So what is Paul saying? This is my personal testimony. This is the life that I've been experiencing. And yet I still say nothing can separate me from the love of God. Even when I'm stoned. Even when I don't have food. Even when I don't have sufficient clothing. Nothing can separate me from the love of God. In verse 36 it says, For your sake we are being put to death all day long. And probably in your Bibles it highlights the fact that there's a quote from the Old Testament. It's actually a quote from Psalm 44. We don't have enough time this morning, but if you go back and read Psalm 44, you realize the context of the psalm is, the psalmist is saying, we haven't rebelled against you, God. We haven't disobeyed you. We haven't turned our back on you. We haven't forsaken the covenant. And yet these terrible things are happening to us. Why? And he concludes, at least in some sense, for your sake. It must be for your sake. It's not because we've rejected you and we're running away from you. There must be something else going on here. And ultimately, you read the book of Job and you find out Job suffered, but it wasn't because of his own sin. It's because God was up to something else in his life. And in John 9, you see the man born blind and they say, okay, who sinned? This man or his parents being born blind? And Jesus says, neither one. It says it was so the works of God might be displayed in him. That's why he was born blind. And so we have all these things. And and all of this is the basis for um, commands that we find in Scripture where it says, always give thanks for all things. Uh, All that we've been talking about is the background for that. When God says, give thanks for all things, in 1 Thessalonians, he says, in everything give thanks. So in every situation, give thanks. For all things, give thanks. How do you do that? You have to believe that God the Father is loving, with, loving you with an all things love. And then you're free to say thank you in the midst of that. I mentioned um, Paul being stoned. It's a fascinating chapter, Acts 14. Maybe you want to go back and read that, where um, the people are wanting to worship um, Paul and Silas, and then they keep them from doing that. In the next verse, they stone Paul. People are fickle. Don't ever put your hope in people. Put your hope in the Lord. That's what the Bible says. He's not fickle. He's always going to be pursuing your love. He's always going to be loving you. He's not going to want to you know, do you good one day, and he's going to kill you the next day in terms of seeking to hurt you. He's, he's faithful. And yet, the Bible says uh, they stoned him and thought he was dead, which means they thought they did a pretty good job. And he got up. I don't know if he was actually dead and God raised him from the dead. Or if they just thought he was dead. But either way, he got up. And you don't walk away from being stoned without being pretty beat up. The Bible says he goes on and he preaches in other cities. And then he comes back and appears to the people that knew that he was stoned. And you could bet he still had bruises and things on his body. And what does he tell them? He says, through many tribulations, we must enter the kingdom of God. He's like Jonah. Jonah goes through the experience with the whale, gets out probably white as a sheet, and says, repent. And they think, well, maybe we should. (laughs) And Paul is all beaten up, just been stoned, and says, I guarantee you, through many tribulations, we must enter the kingdom of God. He was a walking testimony of what the Christian life looks like But he did not say that we should doubt the love of God. And why is that? In verse 37, it says, because in all these things, we overwhelmingly conquer. The KJV says we're more than conquerors. Someone has said a conqueror is is a person who defeats the enemy. Someone who's more than a conqueror causes the enemy to be a helper. If you're a conqueror, you defeat the enemy. If you're more than a conqueror, the enemy becomes your friend. And that is truly what he's talking about. In fact, it's interesting when uh, Paul writes this, uh, he says, uh, Who will separate us from the love of God? Will tribulation, is tribulation a person or a thing? Who will separate us? It appears what Paul is doing there is he's personifying all these things and he's picturing them as contestants in a ring. And he's sort of like, in, in this corner, standing six foot ten inches and weighing 390 pounds, is the man-child, tribulation the terrible. And reaching around the ringer's his colleagues distress, the perplexer, and persecution the harasser, and famine the hungry, and nakedness the needy, and peril the risky, and sword the executioner. But in this corner is weak, feeble, sinful Christian, who all he has going for him is the infinite, glorious God of the universe. No contest. No contest. More than conquerors. More than conquerors. In fact the word for overcomer is hyper conqueror or superman. Who are the real Supermen? You know, we like to watch Marvel comics and DC movies and stuff like that. We like to watch super people. The Bible says there are super people on this planet. They're called Christians. Um, R.C. Sproul could say, We are not just more than conquerors, but super conquerors. We are supermen. The New Testament says it is the Christian who is the superman. It is a Christian who rises to the supreme level of conquest. It is a Christian who has his, at his disposal the power to conquer which no one else confined in Christ we don't conquer people in bloodbaths of fights but we conquer trouble hardship persecution famine nakedness danger and sword how much more strength does it take to conquer distress and persecution or peril than it does to beat up somebody on the street corner but why can we be super people because Christ enables us. I can do all things through Christ who strengthens me. That's the only reason. He's the Superman, and he enables us to be super men and women. Let me try to wrap this up really quick because I know I'm over. In the C.S. Lewis uh, uh, Narnia series, you've got uh, in the Lion, the Witch, and the Wardrobe, um, the which argues that she has the right to kill Edmund, who was a traitor. And she argues that based on the idea of deep magic, which says if you are a traitor, you die, and the white witch gets your blood, according to deep magic. And then later on in the story, we find Aslan the lion dies in the place of Edmund. And he rises from the dead. And, um, Susan and Lucy say, what's going on here? And that's where Aslan says, uh, telling them what all this means. It means that though the witch knew the deep magic, there is a magic deeper still which she did not know. And that deeper magic was that if an innocent person died in the place of the traitor, then um, the table would crack and death itself would start working backwards. So what's going on here? Paul is talking about the fact that below the surface of everything, there is a deeper magic that is transforming all your circumstances that is ultimately going to result in you having all blessings that is going to conquer all your sufferings so that you will be able to thank God for them because they will be for your good. That's why Jesus could say, blessed are those who are persecuted. Blessed are you when people insult you and persecute you and falsely say all kinds of evil things against you because of me. Rejoice and be glad, for your your reward in heaven is great. That's why at the end of Job it says, Job says, Therefore I declared that which I did not understand, things too wonderful for me which I did not know. That you were up to things too wonderful for me. There was a deeper magic going on in my life. That's why James says, consider it all joy, my brethren, when you encounter various trials. You know, um, two of my favorite songs are God Moves in a Mysterious Way, His Wonders to Perform, it says, "Ye fearful saints, for us courage take. The clouds ye so much dread are big with mercy, and shall break with blessings on your head." That was written by William Cooper, who afterwards had a bad dream, and from that point on, he did not think he would be saved. He thought that God told him in the dream that he was not His child, and he would be condemned. Well, before that dream he wrote that song god moves in a mysterious way he also wrote another song which is there is a fountain filled with blood drawn from emmanuel's veins and sinners plunge beneath that flood lose all their guilty stains says it "Ere since by faith i saw the stream thy flowing wounds supply redeeming love has been my theme and shall be till i die but he died the redeeming he, he excuse me he Struggled to really believe the redeeming love of God till he died. Why? Because he had a bad dream. People often talk about their experiences as this is just a bad dream. This whole thing is so horrible, it's just a bad dream. Are you trusting God's word of love for you and to you above all your experiences? That's the point. Let's pray. Father, we just pray um, that you'd help us to receive your word. Help us to believe that you are transforming all our circumstances into that which will truly benefit us and do us good. That you have promised us all blessings and that you are conquering all of our sufferings, so that they ultimately will be that which you use to satisfy us more and more in you and to make us like Christ so that we might have the joy of Jesus in greater, deeper, richer ways. Father, please help us to receive this word and help us to remember that our hope is found in what you've done for us as we prepare to partake of the Lord's Supper. In Jesus' name we pray, amen.